Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome back to Your Tables Ready. I'm your host, Carol Hadar. While we usually talk to the founders of restaurants and bars, today I have a very special guest, Pippa Murray. Pippa is the founder of Pip and Nut Peanut Butter. A few reasons why I wanted to bring her onto the show. Firstly, I could talk about peanut butter all day long. Nothing would make me happier, but also I, I truly love this brand. Second, Pippa's story is literally every entrepreneur's dream. She left her nine to five job to test out a product that she made herself in her own kitchen. It was instantly profitable. Fast forward five years, she's created a company worth nearly 20 million pounds. Despite the amazingness of all of that, the actual main reason I really wanted to chat to her was the way that she categorically changed the much neglected nut butter industry is incredible. Her innovative package design that she did with B&B Studios, I'm talking about the sachets of peanut butter and almond butter that you can get for on the go consumption, just transformed the way we all perceive nut butters as a food and introduced so many new ways for us to use them. She essentially livened up a snack that was perceived as unhealthy and dull. If you're an entrepreneur yourself, I highly recommend taking notes throughout this episode. She gives so many useful tips. Right, here's the chief squirrel herself, Pippa Murray. Yeah, I mean, we are, like Pippa Nut is a classic um, kitchen tabletop startup, um, which I started in my kitchen in North London that, yeah, has gone far beyond where I think I thought it could go. Um, Not because I didn't have big ambitions, I guess, not being, you know, my background wasn't in food and drink at all as working as a theatre producer. So going from that into the world of FMCG, notoriously cutthroat, you know, it's it really has gone from strength to strength year on year. But yeah, started from very like humble beginnings with a blender in my kitchen with a bag of nuts and used to make the product in my kitchen and go down to Maltby Street Market um, at the weekends and sell different flavours of peanut butters and nut butters. And that, that's really where it started. So were you just like going to the supermarket and then like just choosing some nuts and then going home and blending them? Like, how did you know what nuts to buy? Yeah, I mean, sort of. I, there's, um, so I was living in sort of Finsbury Park and just up the road on the green lanes that they've got some amazing like nuts shops where because it's all the kind of Turkish influence up there. So they have these shops which are just like loads of really great quality nuts. So I actually used to go there and just bag up loads of big bulk um peanuts and almonds and cashews and things like that and I, that's what I used to kind of test the recipes and then I guess since then we've, we've become a bit more smart about exactly what we want to source and because you'd be surprised when you get down into like the real nitty-gritty of it just how many variants of different almonds and peanuts you can buy in the market but yeah when it, in its in its early days I'd just go there and I'd buy it in bulk um and try it out in my kitchen so did you keep your day job? Were you like working nine to five and then on the weekends going down to the market and then testing out like if it was a viable idea? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm a big believer in starting small when you are thinking about a food product or, or really any um, sort of doesn't need to be food. It could be any business, I guess. But I think there's really something to be said about to use, I guess, the tech word, the minimal viable product. What can you do for the cheapest amount of money? for the sort of and quickest kind of speed to market to kind of get people to try it and I think particularly not coming from the industry I think that in itself I felt was a a really important step in the journey of building the business was to get some early stage feedback and and also on a really micro level decide whether or not I actually enjoyed this so yeah I was working um, full-time and then I moved to part-time at my job at uh, the Science Museum and 
at the weekends and at my evenings and like on the one or two days off I had during the week I would be either making it in my kitchen or looking and doing research for how I could kind of scale it up and for me like markets was like almost like a market research it really wasn't kind of the business that I wanted long term but but for me, it was enough to be able to prove to myself that I was going to, you know, that, that people liked it and that I enjoyed it. But also, I think particularly then when you go out and raise money, it's quite good to have some proof of concept, even if it's a really small, rough and ready version. And I think to be able to demonstrate to people that you've, you've pulled up your sleeves and you've, you've got in front of customers and you've spoken to people really early on. So, yeah, it was kind of a slow phase, two years of building up the business, kind of starting up the business and then I kind of count the official launch date which was about five years ago now um when we like did our first production with our manufacturer and um properly launched it into stores we launched into Selfridges in as our first customer in January 2015 and that's when it was you know a properly branded product made through a contract manufacturer um to our product specification and then actually sold properly in retail so yeah I mean that whole thing of you know things take longer than you think it's going to take I mean absolutely true at two I would never have thought it'd take two years to get a product to market but yeah in, in the end that's what it what it boiled down to and at what point did you go to Crowdcube like what, at what point did you decide to raise 120k yeah so did a, a crowdfund about six months before we launched the business and that was essentially had everything lined up. So I'd, I'd found my factory. I'd done all our branding and, and packaging with a brilliant agency, um, developed all the products, you know, really worked on those recipes to improve them, found our first customer, which is obviously Selfridges. And yeah, that's when fundraising kicked off. And actually I found, I found fundraising really difficult in that early stages. I went and met what felt like hundreds of different angel investors to see whether or not they'd put money in. And I ended up finding that most people said no and all would drag out and kind of, you know, meet me eight, ten times and still not willing to kind of invest. So I actually turned to Crowdcube as a, a slight last resort where I thought, well, you know what, I will pull it from a number of people, um, even if it means people only have to put 5K in instead of committing to 100 or 150K. Um, I'll just take it from almost your friends and family round and some. And that's, so yeah, did, did the crowdfund and I funded it in nine days in the end on the site which you know crowdfunding I mean back then it was what about six seven years ago it was quite a different landscape then there was it wasn't quite as competitive as I think it is now but equally it was a much more unknown kind of platform not as many people were using it so it felt quite risky um, but at that point I guess you know putting it public and putting your business live you, you've really got nothing to lose I guess at that point and also it does give you that kind of I guess it's another proof of concept, doesn't it? If you manage to raise the money through a number of people. So in the end, we pulled about 70 investors uh, invested in the business, everything from £5 up to £20,000. But yeah, that pressing live moment when you sort of finally click your campaign to go live, it's particularly the first fundraise you do as well is, I mean, it's so nerve wracking. You just kind of sit there being like, this is going to be one really embarrassing, like couple of months if nobody or like barely anyone decides to put any money in but thankfully thankfully they did and then press go on production after that oh yeah yeah just out of interest why were the angel investors saying no did they give you any feedback I think one of the the hardest thing when you're doing fundraisers is that often they they won't actually often say no they'll just ask you more questions and so you end up constantly responding and then 
silence you might get silence for a while but the broadly like but people that did give me a little bit more feedback or did actively say no I think there was like this sense of wanting to see more proof of concept so wanting to see um you know more sales or have see the product launch have the first production under the belt and generally speaking that was the, the general theme was that they just wanted the business to be further down the line I think reading between the lines I think there was a fair bit of uncertainty around me as an individual I think particularly at an early stage I think investors are very much looking at you know what's that individual do I trust that they're gonna do it because actually you don't have a big track record of sales to be able to kind of you know lean on so I think the fact that I didn't have any food and drink experience at that particular point and I think I was 25 at the time I probably looked quite young and naive so I think there was probably a little bit of nervousness around that as well Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. So you said that you already did the branding at that stage, but was it the full brand identity that you did with B&B Studio, which I want to talk about in depth in a moment? Um, or was it more just like a slap on the label and we'll figure out the branding later? Like, so just like a simpler version. So when I went to markets, which was, you know, the first few months of starting up, that was just with a friend who was a graphic designer, very cheap and cheerful, but with the name Pippin that. So I'd already discovered and kind of decided upon the name. And it was only about a year later after kind of saying, right, I'm going to scale this up properly. Did I then reach out to B&B to um, work with me to develop the brand that you see today? Um, and they did they did everything from um, the initial, you know, we, we pushed and pulled over the name for a while. I, you know, wasn't sure about it. So we scoped that out and then decided that Pippa Nut was right. And then we also looked at all the identities. So that includes the logo, um, the packaging, the materials, the paper, um you know the structure of the jar um you know all those elements so yeah they really pulled together the kind of real core of the business and the tone of voice helped me that as well so yeah and they did an absolutely brilliant job I think one of the reasons why Pippa Nut has been so successful is that a it's so distinctive in our space you know peanut butter and nut butter was incredibly traditional space and quite boring when it came to design and branding but also there's just so much personality in that in in the identity in itself and so much um scope to build like a really kind of ownable world around the around the the um the logo in particular that you know it's been a marketer's dream in terms of being able to build that brand and have a real kind of um playfulness around how we communicate with our shoppers okay so you did all that before you got the funding so how did you pay for the branding agency i'm assuming you weren't working full-time anymore yeah, so when I um, approached B&B, I guess it was the, uh, I, I knew full well, actually, I couldn't afford their services. They were really, you know, they're, they'd say themselves, they won't mind me saying it, they're kind of like in the middle. So they're not, they're not the most expensive agency you can work with, but neither are and they the cheapest. They kind of sit in that middle ground, um, but was quite beyond my sort of financial capabilities at the time I was working part-time I was racking up quite a number of credit cards I think as well to be able to kind of sustain myself so I asked the cheeky question whether or not they would be willing to do the design and artwork and packaging in exchange for equity in the business so they actually invested so they were they were the first people to invest in the business and and they've been partners obviously ever since you know we still work with them on all our new products and and different um, campaigns that we're running as well and it's been brilliant actually having creatives like them who really know brands um, in the business to kind of balance out also a lot of the commercial things that we're talking about. So 
yeah, it, that that for me was a bit of a lifesaver because no way could I have afforded to to invest in in really good branding at that particular point. And I think it has been a, a massive driver to the success of the business. You know, when it comes to food products, you know, you've got to stand out on shelf. You've got to be able to grab people, and it's your best form of marketing. So I'm a big believer in investing there and maybe skimping, scrimping on other areas that maybe you don't necessarily need to spend, you know, you can cut some corners essentially, but brand and product is key. Oh, so how did you find them? Did somebody recommend them? So B&B had designed a number of brands that I just absolutely loved. So they, their first brand that they ever designed as an agency was Bear, which is like a fruit snacking brand, which um, has started about six years prior to when I launched. And it's this just beautiful, characterful brand. Um, and I, I'd followed and done a lot of digging on the business on Bear and, and thought, you know what, I just love their identity. And, and that's what led me to B&B. And then I guess when I started to dig into other brands that they'd done, you know, they've got a brilliant track record and, and created brands that, you know, me as a consumer really loved. So that's that's kind of was my um, acid test on, you know, should I work with them or not? And then I guess then the second when you first meet them, that's when you get a bit of a feel of whether or not it's going to work. I think with design agencies in particular, it's so much about the rapport that you have with the people creating the, the creative um, as much as also their uh, track record. Um, I think both those things have to go hand in hand. And yeah, we have a great relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapport is essential, especially in branding and advertising. Um, I still can't get over the fact that you got them to do your branding for equity and they went for it. And then how lucky that it worked out for everybody. I actually wanted to take a quick step back, though. Uh, I wanted to talk about Shed in the City, a competition you won where you get to live in a shed for three months for free. So you get to work on your idea. How was that? I saw a picture of it. It looked interesting. (laughs) You've done your research. (laughs) yeah no I mean this comes back to I guess just like the fundamental of of when you're starting something up and you have absolutely no cash in the bank and you're doing it off your own salary um you you basically just have to look out for opportunities that might come your way and I think when you're when you're in that startup phase there's a point where you know that you need to kind of quit the job and and go full-time and really commit to something um, but there's always that age-old kind of tension with like, well, I still need to be able to pay my rent. And what what degree of sacrifice am I willing on, to take on this business? Um, you know, am I willing to kind of move home and live with the parents for a while or whatever it happens to be? But anyway, around that particular point and that decision that was kind of coming in my mind, um, a, a competition got um, sent to me, like emailed to me by one of my mentors who um, was basically a competition run by Escape the City, um, which they were looking for a startup that they could um, support by giving them three months rent free and desk space and the catch obviously being like you said in a um, shed in their back garden so escape to the shed was the competition on a complete whim I applied and um, about a month later after kind of fighting it out with a number of other startups the co-founder of escape the city Dom called me and was like Pip you've won the competition and I remember this just kind of realization and kind of slight dread when he told me because I was like oh my god I'm actually gonna have to follow through and live in this thing for the summer um and I quit my job that that afternoon when he told me and yeah so you know moved in two or three weeks later and you know what a it was a really hot summer so I was lucky it wasn't too cold but it was hilarious and brilliant and freeing in the sense that if you've got no overheads whatsoever and, and really you can just work full time on something that you find 
so interesting and you're passionate about it it was an incredible experience but I just remember telling my mum and dad about it and I think they thought I was absolutely mad I think most people thought I was mad and even to this day I still feel a bit awkward about talking about it with certain people because I know it sounds so weird um but it was a great great opportunity I could live rent-free in London and um yeah start up my business and and I over that summer that's when I spent sort of three months basically building up to the crowdfunding campaign um I built built did all the work around that so that's what gave me the space and time to to really focus on doing that so you'd recommend it? 100%. I mean, maybe not in winter. And make sure the, make sure the shed has windows, which this one did. Um, but you do feel like a bit of a feral cat. I remember just sort of, it was in their back garden, so I'd still go inside and use their kitchen and things like that in their bathroom. But, you know, you'd tap on the door and you felt like, you know, you were this animal that was being chucked outside. Oh. Um, you mentioned that you got into Selfridges. That was your first account, wasn't it? In fact, they approached you, right? Can you chat to us about that? Yeah, I did. A, um, it kind of came about a couple of ways, actually. So I did um, a kind of rough and ready market just before I was, you know, about six months before I was launching. Again, it was just kind of trialing, trialing the product, getting feedback. And Selfridges happened to wander by. They also spotted when the buyers spotted the crowdfunding campaign as well. Actually, later down the line, they, they hadn't necessarily talked to talk to each other. So and I think the great thing about Selfridges and their buying team is that if they don't necessarily spot you in the market, they'll certainly be open and receptive to kind of hearing from really up, new up and coming brands. And they are really, they really do have their finger on the pulse when it comes to food trends. Um, so yeah, it was just a really fortuitous, fortuitous moment. The buyer happened to stop by my my stall that I was selling, you know, my early stage product and was like, you know, this is great. Can you reach out to us when you're ready to kind of, potentially take it into retail and so I held on to their contact and then went to to meet the buyer but it's funny isn't it when you do your first pitch meeting you get so incredibly nervous and you have this idea in your mind like it's going to be some sort of dragon's den um pitch where you've got to like win because Selfridges is such an iconic brand um but they're incredibly supportive really open receptive they gave really constructive feedback around the product um and I think, and they're very patient. They they don't necessarily put a lot of pressure on you to launch immediately. They say, you know, when it when you when it's ready, and they'll work with you quite closely um, to kind of get it right for launch. So as a as a customer goes, they they are incredible, and um, they're also brilliant in terms of being able to name check them every so often when you're also selling into when new people, new customers. Um, so a big, a big like stamp of approval, I think, when you get Selfridges as one of your first customers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So is that what opened the doors for all the other supermarkets? Like you're basically in all of them now, aren't you? Yeah, so we've sort of over the past few years, slowly grown into all the major retailers now in the UK. Um, and But it has been like a slow-ish process in the sense that we haven't, ne- we didn't necessarily rush out to all of like, you know, Sainsbury's, Tesco, Asda, Morrison's. We kind of took our time to build into a lot of those retailers. But our, our first big listing um, came with Sainsbury's which was sort of almost at the end of our first year of trading and yeah I mean I, I still remember the day when the buyer called me up to um, tell me that I'd won the listing like I almost fell off my seat um, I just it was such a surprise we, we won 400 stores with four products and it was a real make or break moment for the business I think proving that you can sell in a mainstream supermarket you know up and down the country is 
you know, very different to whether or not you can sell in like a premium store in London. Um, it's a completely different beast. And from a supply chain perspective as well, like it, there's so much more complexity in it. But and, and I think that's always the funny thing as well, is that sometimes you can get these big wins and then you realize you've got all this work to do to, to get it going. And actually the work comes when you are actually on the shelf, not not actually when you win it. But yeah, it was a big stretch, actually, because our cash flow at the time was incredibly tight. And I remember celebrating the listing and just being like over, overjoyed that we were going to launch and then working out how much money we'd need to be able to buy all the products to be able to fill the first order which is always quite big because you've got to fill the shelves in their depot as well and pretty much re- working out pretty quickly that we'd just about if not would be a little bit short in terms of having enough money to buy the stock and it was this real scrappy trying to pull together the money to get that first order pretty stressful I remember when we sent it in and had bought all the products I think we had about two pounds left in our bank account because everything had been spent on buying all this stock to fulfill their shelves (laughs) that is scary um did they get to decide what stores you rolled out in or you mentioned 400 stores was that them deciding or you asking yeah it's a bit of both really so I guess you pitch for a number of stores and it's I think it's you know really dependent on on which store which, which customer you're talking to but you know, sometimes you'll be going for their full estate. So Sainsbury's has about 1,300 stores if you like include all their smaller sort of London locals and things like that. So we didn't go into the full estate, but that's what they kind of recommended. They said, you know, we, we, we'd recommend 400 stores and that's what they put, put us forward for. But it's funny actually, because more stores doesn't always equate to um, success. And I think often, and we've certainly made this mistake over time, is that we've listed and launched into maybe too many stores and not being able to support the rate of sale in all of those stores and sometimes it going into maybe 100 versus 500 can actually be better because you can focus your marketing and your energies on on making sure your products sell in those smaller stores before you start to progress into sort of more more and more stores so quality over quantity can actually be can is quite a good strategy so and and sometimes you can fall fall foul of, of actually going too far and and just not getting the rate of sale and that's when you're you're at risk of of getting delisted just real quick for anyone listening who doesn't know what delisting in supermarkets means could you just cover that yeah I mean it's when they sort of take your products off the shelf so you'll you'll lose your listing and um yeah I mean that you can always pitch it back in so it's never like a permanent thing but it's uh it's quite difficult to then win that product to get it back into store if you if it's come out you know, I love your nut butters so much. I love the seasonal ones, particularly the pumpkin spice one. But more than anything, I really admire how you reposition the entire category. The sachets of peanut butter just were literally game-changing. I want to talk a bit more about that, actually. So I know in 2018, B&B Studios won Design Effectiveness Award for Pip and Nut. Um, for the design overall, it was really loved, but the sachets in particular were admired by the industry. Um, who came up with that idea? Well, that was kind of inspired. So I guess what I didn't say when I was talking about how we started up was one of the reasons why I started the business because I did loads of running, still do. I'm just not quite as fast as I used to be, but I used to do loads of marathons. And that was one of those kind of initial kind of sparks of the idea was, you know, peanut butter was always something that I'd have on on toast when I was coming back from a run. It was like my treat. And I always loved the fact it felt like a treat, despite, you know, the fact it's um, it's really good for you. And that was one of the things which 
when I was a runner, I used to hate, um, and I still do, energy gels. They're just awful things. They just mess with your stomach and they taste like rubbish. Um, and actually, I, I remember thinking, well, actually, peanut butter is a great kind of um, natural energy source. And actually, could you have that in a, 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 a packet or a kind of a squeeze pack that you can have almost like an energy gel, maybe pre or post your workout and get kind of a good source of protein from it so really kind of that was the principle and then I guess coupled with the fact that I'm the sort of person that eats peanut butter straight from the jar and have a spoonful here and there I figured that actually sometimes it's a really just good snack all by itself and so yeah we decided to launch kind of little squeeze packs which were kind of single serve pouches that you could squeeze straight into your mouth. Okay so it was you who had that idea more than the branding agency? Yeah, so when it came to like the product flavors, product packaging, you know, kind of formats, um, that that's very much comes from me. Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs listening in? Like any learnings from your own journey? Yeah, I mean, I think I think generally, if you're starting up a business that you don't know the industry, it's the the language can be really challenging. Um, particular, I mean, in any sector, I think you've got all these acronyms and things which you have absolutely no idea what it means. And then also you're having to do things which you've never really done before. So supply chain, running a supply chain is just not something that was in my skill set, let alone also working out how to pitch into retailers, what's the margin structure, how to market a brand that you when you have absolutely no money, like, I think it all of it can seem slightly overwhelming. But one of the things I found most helpful, I think, is the fact that the community that we that I operate in in the sort of startup sort of food and drink space is so incredibly open and willing to share information that I think it's for me you there's nothing you can't learn as long as you're kind of willing to kind of ask some stupid questions and and in in return send some products as a thank you and being open to get people's feedback as as much as you possibly can and then second to that I think just you know make sure you get a good mentor who hopefully knows the industry knows the sector knows the startup space um which is something that you know when I started up I've, I um reached out to a guy called Giles Brook he runs uh Vita Coco in sort of Europe and Middle East and he'd also kind of worked on a number of other brands as well and I reached out to him as to be my mentor and it was yeah one of the best best decisions that I've made he's been incredibly useful over the years just to pick his brain on what to do in certain scenarios so I think the importance and it's kind of an obvious thing to say but the importance of building your own network through both peers but also industry experts just so invaluable because you just can't possibly be know it all and and neither should you so that's probably one of my my biggest things so yeah you'll hit bumps along the way that's just inevitable but as long as you've got someone to call up to say well I've done this like how can I kind of fix it um and they be able to offer some some advice is so so useful you know I actually haven't asked you yet you released a cookbook in 2016 I did. Yeah, we. it was the first ever Nut Butter Cookbook. First and probably only ever one. Um, yeah, we launched it. It was um, with Hardy Grant. And I made, I think about, I think there were about 80 recipes in that cookbook of all different nut butter concoctions. And it was brilliant, actually. Like I remember, well, firstly, it was kind of, a, they approached us if we wanted to do it. And I remember I, I developed all the recipes within the space of about sort of, I think it was about five weeks. And I went would go back to my parents' house every weekend to kind of test the recipes out, and my poor family just got so sick of the stuff they couldn't stand the sight of it. But yeah, we launched it in um, 2016, and then coupled it with obviously lots of kind of 
marketing around that we did like pop-ups in in selfridges and did like a toast bars where we did some of the recipes from there um and it's i think one of the things that's so brilliant about nut butter and one of the things that we've done i think really well is really shifting usage occasions so you know people you would have thought that peanut butter you just put it on some white toast and that's that's how you eat it but actually the versatility of the product was one of the things that I've really fell in love with you can use it in so many different ways whether it's in smoothies or baking or in savory recipes dressings marinades but you know as much as also just putting it on your toast or in porridge and it's such a popular product it still is now I think it's still very on trend in terms of um almond butter and and peanut butter um that and I think because it's because it's so versatile and and so tasty that it lends itself to doing all sorts of different things with it I spoke to Sam and Sam Clark from Morrow and they said their cookbooks were more of a way to promote their restaurants. Um, was this something, was it like PR for you as well or was it more of a passion project or maybe a bit of both? No, it was 100% PR, exactly that. It, I mean, it, it was obviously great if it sold because, you know, you're working with the publisher to, to, to do that. But for us, it was just a brilliant PR exercise. We had all these beautiful photographs that we then would sort of sell into the PR agent or into kind of the press to kind of give them inspiration and I think we timed it around January which is kind of a big push anyway for um, healthy eating so it's kind of great for kind of feeding the press with like recipes that their recipe slots that they'll have so I think in that month I'll have to get the number for you but we achieved like this we launched it in our second year and we achieved the same amount of press in that one month that we did for the whole of our first year so it was incredible for PR and reach. And I think that's the thing when you're starting up a business, you know, you don't have the budgets to afford advertising. Um, you can't spend as much as, you know, the big brands can on, you know, activating the stores. So what you really, all you've got to rely on is your story and, and finding things like that, which are kind of um, much more guerrilla ways of trying to get the reach that you would get if you were doing an ad- an advertising campaign. So, yeah. And, and I think there's something to be said about also something that feels much more softer in the way that you're selling. Um, you know, you're really just giving people inspiration rather than pushing down their throats that they should buy your products. And I think it's that sort of slower, more um, kind of lifestyle marketing that I think most people or certainly our shoppers are much more receptive to rather than sort of you know more traditional uh, methods that you could use yeah are you guys looking to expand um I love the peanut butter cups they're a godsend I really really enjoy those are we can we expect any more peanut butter goodness from you guys yeah I mean things have shifted and changed and I think the short answer is yes like I think one of the beauties of the brand is that it does have that stretch into other other spaces and other products and like I said nut butter is so versatile so you could put it into all sorts of things whether it's you know could go as far as ice creams or desserts as well as other things that we've got in the pipeline but yeah so I think certainly that's one of the ways and that we see ourselves being able to grow the business is through a broader range of products that are in different places in store but certainly yeah corona and the world that we see ourselves going into particularly with the recession we are having to think slightly differently about you know how much innovation do we launch um, and how much focus does do we keep on our existing kind of core business which is obviously our, our jars our, our peanut butters and almond butters because it is I mean I think the frustrating thing and kind of constraining thing about working within sort of retailers is that they're so limited on their ability to be able to like stretch their shelves you know they've only got a certain amount of space so the competition is so high and particularly when it comes to 
you know, slightly tougher times like recessions, they are less receptive to trialing new innovation that might not deliver the same sales as maybe something that's already existing. So you really have to kind of tread carefully and make sure that you're really tailoring products that will meet the needs of their shoppers. So yeah, it becomes trickier. I wish in some ways I'm always quite envious of kind of, I was obviously listening to, like I said, JP from Crosstown who has his own stores and you can be much more nimble in that sense. Whereas in the world of sort of supermarkets, you have to really be working to their timelines and and their kind of constraints, I guess. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. I like to finish all my interviews asking, uh, what are some of your favorite bars and restaurants in London? Yeah, so my absolute favorite restaurant um, that I could literally go go to every week is Jolene's, which is on Newington Green. It's uh, part of kind of a number of, they've got a few restaurants. Um, so their Western Laundry is their first restaurant that they opened up in North London. But it's like a beautiful little um, kind of restaurant that's kind of has the most incredible sourdough that they sell during, during the day, but they kind of do small plates and incredible pastas. And it's just my local restaurant that just happens to be down the road from me. But yeah, I guess for me, I, you know, I've got my firm favourites of which, you know, Morrow, I'm not just saying that, is is high up there. It'll be the store, that the restaurant that I go to regularly um, and just down the road from them as well. There's an amazing wine shop, as a kind of wine bar that I go to um, all the time. And then I guess in terms of, I guess, food stores and and places that I go for like quick eats you know our office is based in Shoreditch in Shoreditch right by Spitalfields Market and all around there is just like a plethora of incredible restaurants um and and great like quick eats so one of my favorites that just opened up was um Bubala which is like a vegetarian uh, restaurant that's kind of does Middle Eastern food and that's probably one one of my favourite restaurants that I've been to most recently. But all around that area, the Spitalfields Market has so many startup um, and kind of more established kind of food and drink kind of takeout places that you're kind of spoiled for choice. Thank you so so much. That was awesome. Thank you. I could speak to you forever about peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolute pleasure. I've been brilliant talking to you. I'm still not over Pippa's genius idea to ask the branding agency to take equity instead of payment. It's just such a game changer. Pippin Nut is a really tasty, healthy, and fun brand for this generation of nut butter lovers. We didn't touch on this during the interview, but Pippin Nut is actually a B Corp company, and that means that they're a socially responsible company. They look after the welfare of their own people, the people of the world, the planet, and they have to be transparent with their profit. The company's also really vocal about what they do to help out for poverty. They do a very cool you buy one, they donate one uh, jar of any of their peanut butters to a food bank. Um, And then more recently, Pippa wrote an open letter about how the company will step up to support the whole Black Lives Matter movement. It's really great to see brands as small as a peanut butter brand showing how much they care and give back to society. I'm really in awe of everything she's achieved and I hope you found this story as inspirational as I did. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll see you guys next week.